From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Hi, Mom. It's 7.40 in the morning, and the sun is just about to rise over the mountains. Walking down 10th Ave, getting nearer and nearer. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and bits and pieces of fabulous audio we find all over the world. We listen to the internet, the airwaves, and anywhere else ears belong. Then we play you the best of what we find. Wow, it's a really sunny, gorgeous day. There's just a few clouds. Today, two stories. In each, a young man leaves his home in the prime of life. One never returns. One returns, but is forever changed. Decades later, each family is still trying to cope with the primal shift that's marked their lives ever since. So what happens when seismic change hits a family? Nothing's ever the same, but still, there you are, having to make sense of the aftermath. I know it sounds ridiculous after almost 40 years, but there was always a hope that we would find him someday. Our first story is from rural New Brunswick, Canada, where in 1967, 17-year-old Richard Hovey left his family for Toronto to try and make it in the big city as a musician. He was never heard from again. When does a person die? When is it exactly? Is it when your heart stops beating? One precise moment? Is it many times, many moments, as memories fade and people, one by one, lose sight of your face? Or is it never, if you live on in the minds of your friends and family, people who love you? Carolyn is one of Dickie Hovey's sisters. I know it sounds ridiculous after almost 40 years, but there was always a hope that we would find him someday. I am totally convinced there was never any thought in his mind that he wasn't coming back to us. It was a time of freedom. It was a time of joy. It was a time when a young man didn't stay to be a boy. All the world's a stage, it said. Some have to prove it's true. To roam and play on every stage is what they have to do. But the world is big and lonesome, and the world is big and dark. The world is not the kind of place where everything's a lark. A young man's hope is quickly dashed. His music gone, it seems. And everybody wonders what happened to his dream. The body at the center of the police investigation was discovered in a field in Schaumburg, Ontario, in May of 1968. It's a pretty rural location, um, about 45 minutes uh, outside of, say, downtown Toronto, private, uh, secluded type of area. Detective Inspector Dave Quigley is leading the investigation. 
skeletal remains were found uh, laying on the ground up against the fence. Um, there was no clothing found on him. His uh, hands were tied behind his back with a shoelace. And uh, um, that's, that's how he was. The remains? The remains were almost completely skeletonized, but there was hair uh, still there. There was some remnants of uh, tissue, which of course can assist me with uh, the reconstruction process. Pete Thompson is a forensic artist. In the summer of 2006, he began the painstaking process of putting a face on a murder victim. The suture lines of the skull um, were not uh, completely sealed. The wisdom teeth had not erupted yet. They were still impacted, um, which is suggestive of uh, the individual being uh, around 18 or possibly younger than 18. People are being asked to remember back, please, 40 years ago, for a young male family member or friend or neighbour who went missing without explanation. The OPP further is offering rewards of $50,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction he of He left in the spring. My mother wrote in her Bible that it was May 22nd, 67. Dickie was coming into himself like he was, he was really gifted. And once he got his guitar, that was... That was what he was interested in doing, and he really didn't want to be involved with a whole lot of other things, which was not always a good thing. He had, he was in trouble a lot with school, not wanting to go to school. Always kind of felt that he was escaping the trouble he was going to get into at the end of the school term. You know, when his marks came in. Well, or no marks. <laughs> really? Yeah. Dickie Hovey grew up in Marysville, New Brunswick, just outside of Fredericton. It was on Crockett Street where we uh, did most of our practicing in uh, Dickie's parents' basement. This is an old reel-to-reel -reel recording of one of those basement sessions. Dickie played lead guitar, and Terry Arnold played drums. We're wearing olive green sports jackets with uh, corduroy with yellow turtlenecks, but they were actually supposed to be royal blue, and that's why we were called Teddy and the Royals. Dave, we went to pick them up. Yeah. We, we had a dance that night. Yes, we did. You're right. And they were olive green, so we took them, but we couldn't change our name. Teddy and the Olives. Teddy Teddy, yeah, it didn't sound too good, so we, we ended up with, with the olive green jacket. Well, I think the, uh, the identification of the victim uh, and the victimology is the starting point of any homicide investigation. It's important to know who your victim is, why they were victimized, where they've met their offender, where they were taken to, that sort of thing. We have a victim, a uh, victim of a homicide, who's a young white male uh, found in the uh, late 60s. 
it's it's important. It's uh, morally important for the police to pursue this with uh, with all means possible to them, uh, because you have loved ones and family and friends that uh, never knew what became of uh, you know their friend or their 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 relative. And uh, even more importantly, you have uh, a person who's committed the act, uh, uh, perhaps walking around free. In the band photo, Dickie Hovey is second from the right, looking at the camera with open-eyed determination, one hand in his pocket, the other on the neck of his guitar. Dickie had a Sears. Kent. Kent, Kent, Kent from, guitar. from Sears, though, wasn't it? Yep. He bought yep. But he, cheap old guitar. Yeah. But he wanted, a, he wanted a Fender. So he took the guitar all apart and took the saw to it, shaped it like a, a Fender, painted it white to make it look like a Fender, put it all back together. That's right. Right, Charlie? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. was a small individual, uh, just over five feet, and... Uh, How could you tell that? Oh, uh, the measurement of the bones, uh, from the way that they're laid out, is that uh, they're laid out as the person would lay on a on a bed, for example, and the head up at the top, the feet down at the bottom, and then there's a measurement taken. And, uh, you know, with some variables, of course, with the soft tissue would be applied, the person would have had an approximate height from five foot two, for example, to five foot five. Well, he was the smallest one in the band. Yeah, he's skinny. I remember his um, his hands, his fingers. He had long fingers like a piano player. He could stretch his fingers out. I don't know, ten, almost looked like a foot on the neck of the guitar because of the length of his. And whenever whenever he was playing. If he turned sideways or turned around, look at me. He'd have this big smile on his face. Well, they say that the whole place is just—it's just disgusting. No, I've never been there, and I wouldn't go there. <laughs> like a nightmare carnival of laughing faces and screams and crowds. Yorkville, with names such as the Grab Bag, Potpourri, Minor Bird, Penny Farthing, Cat's Meow, Gaslight, The Walrus and the Carpenter, The Kiki Rouge, Chez Monique's, The Big Gay Show, a microcosm of the fast-paced, youth-oriented society we live in. Up to Toronto, going up to Toronto. Yorkville and, uh, and uh, the big rock and roll scene, or, or the scene. Marshall McLuhan might call the scene a global village happening. The hippie scene, whatever you want to call it, you'd go to Toronto. If you were going to get out of this little tiny one-horse town, you had to go to Toronto. And we were, uh, you know, we were hanging out the night before he left. But, I mean, he was just saying that, no, he was going to blow this popsicle stand and... Uh, 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to leave for Toronto tomorrow. And that day, the last time I saw him, I had driven him over town. I don't remember who was with me, but someone was with me because he was in the back seat. And he was wearing a blue sweater, a blue knit sweater, and a madras plaid jacket. And it was my madras plaid jacket. And uh, I drove him over town, and he was heading to a concert. And I dropped him off right beside Officer's Square on Regent Street. It didn't stick in my mind that it was something I was... It didn't stick in my mind that it was something I was going to need to remember. When our grandparents died, I thought he'd be home. When mom and dad, you know, just different things over the years, I think, oh, well, he's going to come home. When he made a name for himself, he would be home again. Basically figured, well, he'll be back. He'll be back. Showing off. <laughs> Did your mom and dad talk to you about it? Oh, no, no, mother, like, uh, never mentioned it, no, she never talked about it, and you knew you couldn't talk about it with her. I filled the uh, orbital sockets where the eyes would sit uh, with uh, some cotton and uh, taped it with masking tape so that uh, when I do apply the clay, uh, there won't be any pressure put on the interior bones. Uh, the same thing is uh, done with the uh, nasal aperture. Uh, a little bit of cotton, uh, some tape and some clay to block it off. It's a non-drying, uh, flexible clay, which is very easily worked with. Uh, it can be molded in any fashion you'd like. That allows to, for it to, to bring out a little bit more of a lifelike quality. In 1971, five years after Dickie left home, Carolyn moved to Toronto and began looking for him. We looked in bars. Oh, we went to clubs, checked out every band. Used to stare at people thinking, even if I didn't recognize that him, he'd recognize me. So I used to stare at people and stare at homeless people all the time. I thought, well, maybe that's what happened. He, he was hit on the head, maybe he couldn't remember, and um, he became a homeless person. You're looking all the time at strangers. You're looking to see if they look familiar, or checking out their faces. Well, yeah. I always kept an eye out for uh, bands on TV or pictures in the paper, trying to pick them out, thinking that looks like them. There was actually one that, I think it was Motorhead. There was a picture in the paper, they were playing at the Aiken Center. And I looked at that picture and there was a fellow there, I could have sworn it was Dickie. I got out the old photo that, that we have of the band and I looked at it with a magnifying glass. I even called Charlie. I said, have a look at that fellow on the right. I even called the promoter 
in town and explained the situation about a young fellow in the band left and nobody's heard from him, that I think this might be him. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, just go up and ask him. Turtles Arnold wants to know how's he doing. He said, who? I said, Turtles. He'll know who that is because that was my nickname. He said, yeah, okay. A couple of days later, he, he called me and said, I talked to the fella. He doesn't know what you're talking about. It started out being a, a worry and a fear. And then over the years, it kind of changed to a, a sadness. People say now, you must have known he was dead, but none of us ever, ever talked about him being dead, ever. My next step was to apply the tissue depth markers glued to the skull at certain landmark points. Uh, the next step it would be to set the eyes. Obviously, the real twinkle in his eye. eyes vary Squint from one person to another. Smiled. Some people have you know, narrow he eyes. His eyes the squinty eyes and very wide eyes. It, it's a they guess here. Squinted. They smiled with him. I chose to go with the most unsuggestive eyes I could, which were a hazel were green. Blue and I knew his hair color, which was blonde yeah, to brown. He had brown. nice teeth, very nice teeth and nice smile. Uh, the mouth is formed. Really cute. He was really formed, cute. Uh, as to how the reconstruction would be presented, in this case, an open it's mouth really, concept. Really cute. Uh, mouth, as if he was almost about to speak, just to His show the teeth. His nose was turned up. Uh, the no nose. To call it a ski jump. I I was quite confident turned that I received uh, achieved. We both a, had turned up nose, so a very good approximation. A very it's good kind likeness. of hard to tease him about that because I had one myself. And the nose he didn't is have freckles, and I did, so he teased me about my freckles. Well, i seen the face materialize. Fairly high cheekbones. That was the one thing in the reconstruction. That was the only thing. And uh, if you want to say that it's bringing him back to life That I could see in the moment, reconstruction. That I guess Other than is. that, I couldn't see any resemblance. When you see the face, you're, you're saying, I hope I'm accurate. But obviously, he, I hope this is right. he did a great job. In November 2006, the Ontario Provincial Police released the picture of the reconstructed face of the person whose body had been found naked and bound in the farmer's field all those years ago. I'm Sue Scandati, and welcome to Crime Files Cold Case Edition. Every show, we bring you new information on unsolved Canadian cases. Within 24 hours, there was a breakthrough. A friend of mine, he phoned me and he said he'd seen something on television. He knew that my brother had been missing for all these years. He clicked two and two together and he phoned me up. I didn't take it too serious there for, I don't know, for a little while because all the rumors over the years. So. Anyway, I phoned the RCMP first. They didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And so I phoned him back, and he talked about something to do with the Ontario police guys. So I phoned them, and they knew what it was about. 
we get talking a little further about the whole thing and uh, and uh, they came down and that's when I started feeling that there's probably something here. I felt sorry for them that they were making that big trip down and it was just going to be futile because I was totally convinced it wasn't going to be him. A former Fredericton man has been identified as the victim in a murder in Toronto almost 40 years ago. Ontario Provincial Police say Richard Dickey Hovey's remains were found in a rural area north of Toronto in 1968. I kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure? I just said that over and over. And the officer said, yes, definitely. A family member and a friend of Hovey contacted the OPP in November after a forensic reconstruction of his face was posted on a cold case website. Investigators confirmed Hovey's identity through comparing his DNA with his siblings. You know, it's, uh, it's wonderful for them to at least resolve what's happened to their brother, but of course it's very sad and tragic at the same time. So. Hovey moved to Toronto to work as a musician in clubs in the Yorkville area. Hovey was about 17 at the time. Once the police found out who the murder victim was, once the 40-year-old remains had a name, they started to track Dickie Hovey's movements during his time in Toronto. Well, we know that Dick came to Toronto uh, to um, make his way in the music scene. Yorkville at the time, at, at least one place he was playing was the Minor Bird Club. These pictures have gotten so scattered, they're not in the Minor Bird. Oh, all these were probably taken at the Minor Bird. Yes, they were. And that could be him in that picture, I don't know. We'd have to put them under some kind of magnifying glass to, to see. It was a pretty uh, crowded place at, the, at, at that time. There is one face in the crowd that Bobby Lee Justice has never forgotten. The mysterious boy from New Brunswick. A young lad in the audience, and it was in 1967. Um, and I remember it because that's the year that uh, I got married. And I remember it exactly, the year. It was 1967, and there wasn't an awful lot of um, hippies or young people hanging around the village at that time that were from down east. They had their own culture, and, and they didn't uh, fit in. He was a guitar player. And this fellow, now I don't know if this is Richard or not, but he was the only uh, east person from down east from New Brunswick that I remember being there. And he was there for a period of uh, three to four weeks that he would be at the Minenberg every night that we played, and we played Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday nights. And every time he'd be, he would stand right in front of the stage, he'd be about six feet in front, of, in front of me, and he would just keep hollering and asking for this one song called Treat Her Right. This song is very, very heavily uh, led by guitar. That's what it is, it's mostly guitar. You know, him being a guitar player, that would be one reason why he would be requesting it all the time. Hey! Next three or four weeks, every time he was there, which was every night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, he would do the same thing, and that's the only song that he would request was that song. Then he, he just came and went, the boy from New Brunswick. We never saw him anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
do you know how long after he left Fredericton before he ended up in this field? Uh, it would have been a very short time, period of time, weeks. Dick was killed uh, likely in June of 1967. Do you know how he was killed? Uh, we have... I probably shouldn't say that. Just too terrible, really, to think what happened. He was just a kid. I hope he didn't know. Hope he didn't know what was happening to him. I hope he didn't suffer. I had hope. I didn't want it to turn out the way it did. I don't think I have um, slept a night when I haven't had nightmares. I still get dreams, and, and uh, the, the dreams, he's not any older. Into God's keeping, we commend our brother here departed, Richard Hovey. We commit his ashes to the ground, earth to earth, dust to dust. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This burial spot marks his resting place near where his boyhood dreams beckoned him away for a while. He's home. He's home. Yeah, he's home now. Buried with mom and dad. We had a nice service for him and a lot of his friends and a lot of our friends were able to able to go and acknowledge that yes he did exist always wonder we know now why he didn't come home The Boy Who Never Returned was produced by Mavon Wee Davis and Steve Wadhams for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. As a child, I was really happy and, and I was really enthusiastic about everything. As I've gotten older, I, I'm not as idealistic as I used to be. I think I see life more as it is now. and I'm not as dreamy and, and creative as I used to be. 
just letting you know that. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. The work you hear on ReSound is called from all over the world. We work to bring it to you in the comfort of your own home, car, what have you, which saves enormously on airfare. The work we ask of you, simple. Let us know what you think. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Julie Kimberly's job as a radio reporter is to tell the story of other people's lives. But in our next documentary, she stayed much closer to home, turning the mic on the familiar instead of the new. Years ago, her brother, Matt Lawson, suffered a serious brain injury. Her story, titled The Beauty of Bulldog, is the revisiting of his accident, which in a split second altered the future of the entire family. Matty was full of life. He was 100 mile an hour. He was a gregarious kid, had a mile of friends, and he loved girls. Always had a string of girlfriends and um, was always very popular and funny. Everywhere where he went, Matty came in. He was like the life of the party. Everyone loved to see Matty rock up. Oh, always a very good drawer. Um, really good surfer, skin diver, um, footballer and particularly played union. Um, he was always in every age group from when he started. He was always in the rep team as well as the um, local team. He was always picked for that. Uh, he was like your average big brother. He was outgoing, always um, seemed to be doing something, taking me somewhere and I hung out with him at the beach a lot. He always looked after me and watched my back and um, if anyone was sort of giving lip towards me, he'd sort of step in and say, you know, this is my little brother, watch out. So what are you doing now? Starting a tractor up. Yep. And you slash your own property? Yep. How long does it usually take? Oh, a couple of hours. A couple of hours, you can do it slow. And how how often would you do it? Every fortnight in summer. And twice in winter. Here we go. Matt Lawson is my 40-year-old brother. He lives alone on an eight-acre property in the far north coast of New South Wales. Matt lives a fairly solitary life, rarely leaving his property, and has only a few friends he'd call true mates. Unfortunately, Matt can be quick to temper and suffers from uncontrollable outbursts that can be triggered by the most insignificant things. He wasn't always like this. There was a time when Matt was active, fit, happy and extremely sociable. 
but at the age of 18, he suddenly changed. He was bleeding internally and had massive um, bleeding in the brain and all that sort of thing. He had severe brain damage and also a pierced lung. Then that was why his um, breathing was um, erratic. He was drowning in his own blood, basically. Well, it was just an ordinary everyday night. Matty went off with his friends to the pub to celebrate his 18th birthday, going to have his first official beer at the pub and go back to the surf club dance. My wife and I had gone to bed and... Uh, about midnight, I think it was, the phone rang and this young lady said that she was out at Monavale Hospital with Matthew and that he'd been involved in an accident. She thought we should go out there. They went across the road to the surf club dance and the car came along the road with no headlights on and speeding and hit Matthew. Matty went up over the roof of the car and landed on the road. And Matty was laying on the table and looking not too bad. He didn't have arms or legs missing or anything, but he was spitting blood and a bit incoherent. We're in the fortunate situation that my sister is married to a doctor. Didn't like ringing him at one in the morning, but luckily I did. And he immediately said, look, I'll see you out at the hospital. He had to drive from Gladesville. So I went back out the hospital. Greg arrived and checked Matty out and straight away ordered an intensive care ambulance to go to North Shore Hospital. If he hadn't have done that, Matty wouldn't have seen the morning. That is for sure. And so I owe a deep... Debt to Greg for saving Matthew's life, for sure. And uh, at times I feel I want to strangle Greg for saving Matthew's life, but <laughs> other times we're very proud that he did. What do you remember or what do you know about the accident? What have you been told about it? Oh, I told five million things. I don't really recall none of the accident. Don't want to. I try and wipe it. I don't want to recall it. Why is that? Because I think about it. So I try and wipe it. That's why I like to smoke and wipe right myself off. So I don't think of shit all the time. What do you mean? Like, what's so scary about your accident that you can't think about it? Just walking down the road, being in public, anything. And that's paranoia now. So you gotta numb yourself to fit in. Because people think you're a freak. Well, that's what I think anyway. So you think people think you're a freak because you have an acquired brain injury? Yep, because they don't have one. Have people treated you like that? Do you have examples of people treating you like a freak? Oh, it happens daily. I can't recall an actual incident, but it happens daily. We couldn't believe we were in this other world of intensive care units with life support machines and um, alarms going off and doctors and nurses rushing back and forth and it was all overwhelming in a way and every hour we didn't know whether Matthew was going to pull through or not. He had many times when the um, flat line bells went off and they raced and revived him and everything else and no one knew if he was going to live from one day to the next for quite a long time. And we virtually spent months up there in the intensive care, day in, day out, and our lives changed entirely. Yeah, around that time, like, didn't really, you know, 
see a lot of mum and dad because they were always at the hospital um, sitting there with Matt, hoping that, you know, he'd open his eyes, as we all were. We were all hoping he'd open his eyes. What was it like when he finally did open his eyes? Just um, wasn't the same bloke, put it that way. It wasn't the same bloke that opened his eyes. But um, he was alive, he was breathing, um, but it definitely wasn't the same brother that before, that's for sure. After Matt did wake up, there were many hurdles still to come. At first he was strapped into his bed to stop him from thrashing around and removing the pipes in his throat, where they performed a tracheotomy for him to breathe. It was pretty ugly having to see my brother tied down, unable to talk clearly and struggling to make sense of his new world. As he progressed and the tracheotomy was closed, they filled a hospital room with blue gym mats that allowed him to roll around on the floor. I think this room was pretty powerful in Matt's healing because all us visitors had to lie or sit on the floor with him. Matt's demands for chocolate milkshakes during this time were welcomed and always accommodated. My Uncle Pete would often buy him two at a time. It's amazing how Matt's desire for something as simple as a chocolate milkshake gave us all great hope that he was on the road to recovery. He um, spent, what, three, four years of his best years of your life inside hospitals, going for rehabilitation, going for this, doing that, staying in places that were um, sometimes quite scary. Can you describe to me what it's like having a brain injury? No, you can't describe it. Cause you, you, you don't know what it's like not, not having one, so no. I can't describe it. I don't know what I was like before it, really. I don't really know what I was like before it. So no, I can't. They warned us originally that all brain injury patients with Matthew's injury become very violent and causes a lot of problems in the home, and especially with friends and family and ones close to them. And true, Matty's had a few stellar moments, but basically he hasn't been too bad with the family. Are you able to hold down a job now? No. I forget to get up and forget to go. I just forget the most stupidest things. I might leave the house, go to the shop five times before I finally go back and get what I want. I can go in the shop to buy a pack of dairies, come home with milk, go in again, come home with beer, go in again, come home with a lighter. Finally, finally come home with the bloody dairies the fifth time. Done it many times. Yeah. Is that frustrating? Bloody oath it is, oh yeah. <laughs> oh. Pull your hair out, hate it. I recall Matthew being extremely aggressive towards you in particular, um, verbally when Dad wasn't around. Um, how do you deal with that? Like, here's your child that you've loved, you've cared for, you've just sat next to his hospital bed for months on end and then he's turning around and calling you a slut and a whore and really vile. Well, you know, it is frustrating at the time, but then you've you've got to keep in your mind that... And this is not the person that he was. This is the brain damage that he's doing and saying all this. And he just physically does not have any control over it. The anger is something he can't control. He just has these outbursts, like you say, and then he um, is remorseful later. But that's got him into a lot of trouble over the years, hasn't it? 
Oh, a huge amount of trouble. And usually it's over trivial things, always nearly over small things. Like one night down at DY Hotel there where he paid his $12 to get in and I got a call once again in the morning, uh, um, midnight, your son's badly beat up, get down here. And I raced down to the hotel and Matty's laying in the gutter opposite and standing in the doorway about three or four Pacific Islander fellows who were the bouncers with all their shirts torn and bits of skin off them here and there all glaring across and here's Matty in the gutter. Not, but He'd taken a thumping but... And uh, because the first thing Matty said to me, hey, Dad, I said, what happened? He said, I was in there and this and this guy punched his girlfriend in the face. And you know how you told me. To... So I just knocked him out, you know. And, and they threw me out as well. <laughs> and because they have a policy, anyone fighting gets thrown out. And he said, now you're here, Dad. And of course, Matty, when they threw him out, he tried to fight his way back in because he'd paid his 12 bucks. And... And of course, um, he said, oh, now you're here, Dad. Come on, we can beat these guys. Come on, you and I together, we'll beat these. And he's dragging me across the road, trying to get me to knock out these three Pacific Islands that could have beat me with one hand behind their back. I had to throw him with the car at Edlock and drag him home. But, you know, it was sad, but, but not terrible. When you are starting to get angry, can you control that? Can you stop yourself from being angry? Depends on the atmosphere. Depends. Sometimes maybe you might be able to. Sometimes I have, other times just can't. And do you feel remorseful afterwards? Usually, yeah. Like this guy from Bowner. He's huge guy, he's massive. Anyway, he had a go at go Kerry about eight months ago. Gave him a hide and absolutely flogged him black and black with his eyes, busted him up and apologising to, to him the next day and he goes, F*** you, I said, well, F*** you, mate, and just walked off. Yeah. I didn't mean to flog him so bad, but the mental street, street took over. It was no longer me, it was the mental part. I don't know who takes over, but I'm not there. <laughs> 85% of the time I don't remember it. I don't know what it is. If I knew, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> is that scary then, that you can't control that anger? Yeah, that's why I just don't go nowhere. Stay here. People like the police and that are not trained for people with head injuries. Um, they just think that they are aggressive or that they've been drinking or they're on drugs. And um, this isn't the case, of course, but this is what they all presume the person to be. Because when you look at them, they do not have, if they had an arm or a leg or something like that missing, well, people go, oh, well, he has a disability. They don't realise how debilitating a brain injury is. So what are we doing this morning, Maddie? We are doing a weekly grocery shopping at IGA Ballina, where I come in each week to do my shopping. But I got left for jewels today, so I saved heaps of time. How would you normally get here? Hitchhike. Yeah. Do lots of people know you? Do you get lifts pretty easy? Yeah, certain times of the year. Certain, you know, locals name me all the time, so it's easy. Matty would never come back to the original Matty, but he certainly has uh, improved through major efforts on uh, Kurabil, which was the second hospital that he went to, the rehabilitation hospital up at Ryde. 
Maddie was very introverted then and withdrawn and didn't want to mix and didn't want to do anything and we knew what Maddie was capable of and yet he was acting like a little child because he was still developing again mentally. He had to learn everything, you know, walk, talk, eat and clean his teeth and even the tiniest things he had to learn. So Mount Wooga, you do have memories of Mount Wooga. You remember going there? You remember the bus that you used yeah, to catch? Yeah. Tell us about the bus. Oh, oh it's back a bus from hell starring me. <laughs> I used to hate catching it. Used to have, used to have carry on. I hated it. When you're at your peak, 17, or I was actually 18, going past your own home beach, with all your mates looking at you, and you're in a spastic bus, how do you feel? Nah. All your pride goes at the exhaust pipe. That, that used to get me on edge so much. The spastic bus pulling up outside Dad and Mum's house, going past the beach. I used to hate it. When he actually came out of hospital and everything, there were still all the same old blokes around and everything, but a lot of them changed in the way that uh, they treated him because when he actually first came out, he wasn't allowed to drink alcohol. He, you know, he could only have light beers and he wasn't allowed to be out too much and... He always, well, it was more or less like um, we'd go out to the pubs and stuff, but it was more or less like we had uh, a little kid with us and we had to look after the little kid and make sure the little kid was only doing this and only doing that. And, you know, he was, what, 20-odd years old and um, he'd sneak off and he'd come back and he'd be drinking a full-strength beer and stuff. He also had the side of him that was um, always your thinking... Is he quite there? Is he all right? So I suppose it did affect a few of his friends that way because, you know, it affected, you know, everyone that really knew him. Right. Here we are, IGA, doing me shopping. I have to go and ask for a calculator first. So, so you add it up? Yeah. Yep. And do they know you to give you a calculator and things like that? Yep. I sure do. The sad part about it is his coordination was all out and his timing and all these sort of things. And I mean, I used to have to take him down into Kitty's Corner down there at Warrywood Beach and push him on his surfboard. And, and here was Maddie, 20 years old, built like a bull. And I was pushing him onto little waves in the corner and he's screaming, not this one, Dad, too big, too big. And all the little kids paddling out looking across and thinking, is that bulldog? who a few years before used to conquer the biggest surf in the world. <laughs> it was very hard for him to have to start from the bottom again and work his way up. He never regained his full athletic ability, of course. Matty was robbed of probably the two best years of his life, from 18 to 20, and just when he was approaching that, he um, had to really take one huge step backwards, and it took him 20 years to more or less get over that, you know. How much a week do you get to spend on groceries? 75. Is that enough? Well, yeah, you're used to it. Yeah, it is now. Wasn't at first. 
What about when you're um, buying things like laundry powder and cleaning liquids and stuff like that? Because they're fairly expensive. How do you fit those into $75 a week? You get limited. The small ones on special. Yep. $78.90. $78.90. Yep. I'll give you some, cha some change there. I felt very sorry for him at times when he used to come here and I could hear him crying in his room and beating his chest and carrying on. And I didn't ever feel as though I'd think he'd be better off dead, but I used to really think that uh, I wished I could, you know, change spots with him or something because it, he has his whole life in front of him and, and uh, it's going to be hard if he's going to have this for the rest of his life. How um, do you think Matthew's accident has affected mum and dad? Um, I think it affected dad mostly for the fact that um, he thought that he had let down one of his children and um, was trying to fix everything for him, but there were things there that um, one man can't fix and doctors can't fix, and I think it really played a big part in dad trying to always fix it and trying to make it better and thinking that, you know, I suppose as every father would, as I'm a father now, that you'd hope that, you know, your child is going to live a long, fruitful, happy life, but um, something stepped in the way and put a bit of a block there. Dad still, I suppose, is hoping that it's going to change. Do you actually look after any of your accounts? None of them. Your bank statements come to you, though, and then the protective commissioner gets a copy as well, or just you? Don't know, but I get a copy. So I know. I get my own copy and who knows. Seven years after Matt's accident, he was awarded victim's compensation. At the time, Dad was advised about the New South Wales Office of the Protective Commission, or the OPC. Dad decided it would be both in our family and Matt's best interest if his money was managed by them. The OPC take care of Matt's financial affairs. They pay his rates, his water, phone and power bills and provide him with a regular weekly pension. They also pay money into a local supermarket account where he buys his groceries. Without the OPC, we're sure Matt would have spent all his money years ago. They've also protected Matt from anybody with dubious intentions. Because Matthew doesn't have a legal signature, he can't sign for anything financially, has that allowed him to get away with things that perhaps other people wouldn't have? Well, it possibly has allowed people to monopolise him in this fashion. I mean, one of his de facto's, she knew Matthew's situation. She took him into a car sales place up in um, Ballina, bought herself a new car got Matty to sign his, his name to the fact that he'd put his weekly pension payment in to pay the car off. And for some unbeknown reason, the two of them drove off in a brand new um, car from a car yard up there without paying a penny deposit. And I straight away rang the Protective Commission, which straight away rang the car dealers and told them there was no way in the world it was going to be paid for. But anyway... Um, being the resourceful young lady she was, she kept the car for quite a few years before she finally wrote it off, never paid a penny on it. But, I mean, of course, Maddie couldn't be prosecuted for that because they didn't do a background check in which they would have found that Maddie was under the protective commission and can't sign for anything. So, yes, she did use this to her advantage. I don't know how, but somehow they got through the system. But 
Matty thought it was quite cool. Oh, he can go along for a long time and he's quite happy. Um, but then all of a sudden he will get depressed because he gets very frustrated that he can't do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. If he wants to go on a holiday, for instance, you know, it has to be right now. I have to go right now. And it, it takes a great deal of patience and time to talk him around to knowing that he has to wait and you've got to plan it and you've got to get plane tickets and you've got to organise things, you know, everything just doesn't happen right there and then. So how much of um, your interaction with Matthew is organising him and calming him down? Oh, 99%. You know, there's not really a day goes by that we don't get a phone call from Matthew. He was married, he had a an American girl that um, he married and they have two boys but she found it very hard to cope with Matthew and move back to America when the youngest one, Jesse, was about two and a half. Yeah, I'm sure he gets very, very lonely. I think, you know, that it'd be lovely for him if he could find somebody that would settle down with him. This year's love it, Italy. Relationships have been an issue for you then, have they? Yep. Do you talk to your girlfriends about the braid injury and that it does make you a bit angrier? No. No. Why not? In case they think they think that's here. So I don't. Turning circles. Some days are way worse than others. Some days you just can't get out of bed, your back's so sore and your head's sore and you don't want to get out and face the day, nah. Some days, a lot of days are pretty bullshit. So are there actually advantages to having an ABI? What is an ABI? An ABI, Acquired Brain Injury. <laughs> advantages? No, not really, unless you can call charity advantages, no. What about not having to be responsible? Not having to look after your own financial affairs, for example? Well, I could not handle my finances now because I haven't been allowed to. Since my accident, I've not been allowed to handle my finances. So my learning period's over now. I could not do it. Pressure of financial looking after me, I couldn't handle it. No, it sucks. You can't do what norm, what so-called normal people do. Because I can't pass a stupid licence test because of questions, piss me off, I can't, I can't handle the pressure of questions. That straight away singles me out from being, from being normal. And I, I don't believe in paying 50 bucks if you go and get told you're stupid every time, so... No. What were you thinking he would be like by now? Oh, I thought he'd be a lot better, but realistically, no. He will never, ever 
um, be any different to what he is now. Uh, he, he, you know, that that is the best that we can hope for, and so that that's it. We have to be happy with what we've got. Um, Matthew is very dependent on you, though. How do you think he will go if you weren't around? Well, he used to be extremely dependent, but now we're making him, you know, face decisions on his own and that. And often now when he rings me and tells me of wonderful things he wants to do, I now say to him, well, think about it yourself, Matt. And he comes back in two or three days' time and says, yeah, I've decided against that, Dad. You know, and he's done it through his own thought and reckoning and he's learning this way and I think it's very good. I think that uh, he'll be fully able to make quite serious decisions for himself, which he is doing to a degree. Because Matty can be absolutely wonderful company. He can keep the whole place laughing from start to finish. It's only if some little thing goes off the rails that it can be frightening. The rest of the time, he's, he's a wonderful uh, conversationalist. He's a bit of a character. He's always laughing. He loves to help help people. And, and you know, there's no one you'd rather on your side than Matty in a, in a bad situation. Where are we now? Lennox Head Bowling Club. Do you come here often? Yep. What do you do here? Drink and play Kino. Do you win? Not very often. They have a lot of um, raffles and things like that, do they as well? Yep, heaps. Heaps of raffles. Do you win much? Yeah. Do you depend on those wins, the meat trays and things like that? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Bloody oath. Please forgive me if I act a little strange. The Beauty of Bulldog was produced by Julie Kimberly for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Street Stories. When I look at it, so much in my life has happened. I've changed a lot. Sometimes we're very clear that change is our friend. On the other hand, sometimes we're afraid of change. We resist change. We, we cling to the familiar. We crave the predictable. Well, that just about wraps up it all. Goodbye. And it's been a pleasure. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from all over the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.